You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Welcome back. You're listening to the Doing Law Differently podcast. I'm Lucy Dickens, and today I'm joined by Jenny Pakula, who is the Manager of Innovation and Consumer Engagement at the Victorian Legal Services Board and Commissioner. So yes, we're looking at doing law differently from the regulator's perspective today. And let me just say what an interesting perspective that is. Jenny is fighting the good fight for doing law differently from the perspective of the regulator in Victoria, at least, who, of course, are responsible for dealing with licensing legal practice, as well as with complaints from members of the public. But what I think is really interesting and really quite special about Jenny's role in particular is that she's shifting the perspective. So instead of asking what a lawyer's doing wrong or focusing on the bad lawyers, she's instead asking about what's the problem that consumers are experiencing. And then from that place, speaking with and working with the legal profession to work out different ways or help them with ways to redesign or change the way that they deliver their legal services so that we can better meet the need of the consumer. So Jenny describes the Victorian Legal Services Board and Commissioner as a modern regulator who's really trying to perform their role in an innovative and consumer-focused way. And that definitely comes through and you'll hear that in the conversation that Jenny and I have in this episode. So we start by talking about what are some of the common complaints that Jenny sees in her role. And then we move into talking about legal innovation and how that innovation helps to protect or enhance the experience and the interests of people who consume the legal services. And then we also debunk some myths, in particular that it is the regulation that stops lawyers from doing things differently and trying new ways of delivering legal services. And Jenny is very clearly of the view that the idea that there are regulatory barriers is really misinformed and that in fact the regulations do allow lots of different options and lots of flexibility in terms of trying new ideas and doing things differently in the delivery of legal services. And that in fact, often what people think is stopping them is just the fact that that's the way things have always been done, as opposed to the fact that there is a regulatory barrier in place. So we talk about some of those common challenges, particularly around pricing and the idea of information versus advice. And we also touch on commoditized legal services or productized legal services, as I like to talk about. So there's definitely lots of really cool information in this episode for you. And it is a little on the longer side of my episodes. So let's hit play. Let's dive in. So this is Jenny Pakula, the Manager of Innovation and Consumer Engagement at the Victorian Legal Services Board and Commissioner on the Doing Law Differently podcast. Hello, Jenny. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure to have you. We connected, I was trying to remember, I think it must have been about a year ago or so when you got in touch with me about some research you were doing about the legal regulation and legal innovation in the space that you're in. And since then, I've come to know a lot more about what you do. And I find your role and your work really quite fascinating. So I'm excited to have you here and to be able to talk to you about that. So the pleasure is all mine. So let's start for people who who don't know who you are and what you do. Let's start there. Tell us about your role um, at the Legal Services Board and Commissioner. Okay, so my my role is as Manager of Innovation and Consumer Engagement, and that was a role that was created in December 2018. So um, our Commissioner, Fiona McClay, is very interested in 
um, big picture, future looking, uh, future forward regulation. And um, one of the things that she is really keen on is helping regulators to be more focused on consumers and also encouraging the legal profession to be more innovative. So part of it comes from examples that are uh, happening in the UK. So the UK is very sort of forward thinking in the way that they do uh, legal services regulation. But I think also it's a bit of a worldwide problem that legal services really lag behind in terms of uh, consumer friendliness and consumer centeredness. And so we really needed to try and figure out what were the keys to getting lawyers to innovate. Are there any regulatory barriers or anything like that? So I feel incredibly privileged to be the inaugural person in this role, especially since I've had such a long background in legal regulation, lawyer regulation. I feel like um, I was speaking to another long-term lawyer regulation person in the States and we, we think of ourselves as um, sociologists of the profession. <laughs> sounds a bit, bit pretentious. I've just been such a long time looking at really good lawyers, getting very frustrated with the way things are done and very frustrated about the way that they connect with their customers. So so the two parts of the role, innovation and consumer engagement, I see as being very closely aligned because I think one of the big things that I've observed in many years of looking at complaints is just how, how much of a disconnect there is between what lawyers think they're selling and what clients think they're buying. So really the consumer engagement brings the consumer experience much more closely into focus for the lawyer and as lawyers understand um, consumers' experience, what they really need and what the essence of good legal services are, you can start to think about how you might do it differently. So the, the connection innovation is really about responding to consumer need. Yeah, I'm glad you put it that way, because as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about what I was going to ask you and I, my mind went straight to tell me about all the cool innovation. And then I brought myself back and thought, hang on, this is in response to demand from clients and consumers. So maybe we should start there instead. So thank you. Um, that's nice to know. I might have got it right after all. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the way that you put things and the way your clients, your uh, interviewees put things, it's very much around understanding what your customers want and need so yeah and I, I think as a writer we have to be very focused on that as well. Well you said just before um, that you see a disconnect between what lawyers think they're selling and what clients think they're buying and that's a really interesting concept. Can you tell me about that from your perspective in terms of what you see there as a regulator? Yeah, look, I, I picked up this um, disconnect from um, many years of, uh, like I used to uh, manage the front end of the complaints section and I, I kind of triaged nearly all the complaints that came in. And I guess it seemed to me that there was often not a really good conversation at the beginning of the matter where the lawyer and the client aligned their expectations of what was going to happen. So the client might have an expectation of a particular result and the lawyer might, uh, might not explain exactly how they're going to go about trying to achieve that result and whether it's realistic or not. So in some of the complaints where there was particularly an example of this kind of disconnect, it was almost like the client would come to the lawyer with, say, a distressing family law problem, and the lawyer would say, okay, jump in the back of the car, buckle up, and just drive without sort of explaining where we're going and why as opposed to the client sitting in the driver's seat and the lawyer being the navigator. 
So often, for example, with family law, which uh, you know, family law is about 25% of our complaints year in, year out, what often happens is that it just becomes an open-ended, process-driven nightmare for a lot of clients rather than the lawyer and the client actually sitting down and figuring out, well, what are the costs emotionally and time-wise, money-wise? How can you go about particularly trying to keep a matter out of court? So just understanding the process, understanding what the options are and helping the client to make and feel supported by making the decisions that are going to work for them in five years' time rather than just letting the process take over, I think is really important. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that response because when I think about what complaints would you get as a regulator, my mind goes to, and I'm sure there will be bits of this as well, but my mind goes to, you know, lawyers acting badly and people who are acting unprofessional conduct, misconduct, those kinds of things. But it's interesting that the first response or maybe even the majority, I mean, you say 25% of family law, but this is not about that. This is about a much more holistic look at the legal service and its impact on a person's life, I guess, not just this legal issue that they are presenting with. Oh, yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of just the breakup of complaints, one of the things that we did differently from about 10 years ago, uh, this was my first foray into regulatory innovation, was setting up a, a group called the Rapid Resolution Team because I really observed in all the time that I've been handling complaints that the way that they break up would be about, you know, maybe only about 10 or 15% of complaints may present genuine disciplinary issues. So conflicts of interest, gross overcharging, or things that are actually clear compliance breaches or breaches of the rules that really fall below the, the appropriate standards. But then you've got 30 to 35% that are costs complaints, but underpinning those are always customer service, consumer issues, communication, managing expectations, the bill surprise, bill shock, um, all of those sorts of issues. But then there's a whole bunch of other ones, 50%, that are really around poor service that doesn't necessarily result in a disputed bill, poor expectation management or just general random things that don't really amount to a disciplinary breach. So low-level rudeness, dissatisfaction, poor communication, things of that nature. So the vast majority of complaints are really not around disciplinary issues. They're really more around a customer service. And often the lawyer will have done a competent job in terms of handling the law, understanding the law, but they've been very poor at packaging it up for the client or they've overcharged or they've just kind of basically done a bit of a shoddy job. So it's not necessarily bad lawyers, but lawyers that could do a lot better on their customer service. Mm. For me, this comes back to one of the topics that I often talk about, which is about approaching legal services from a business perspective in sort of a different light to what we traditionally have. And I guess this is Jordan Furlong's argument in his book, Law is a Buyer's Market, where he says the power has shifted. And to me, all of the things that you've just spoken about, customer service, poor customer service, managing expectations, just not doing a good enough job, that to me is a failure to recognise that lawyers don't have that power anymore and that they need to really be responsive to their clients. It's, it's the power shift. Right? That's what it comes down to. Yeah, look, I think that's right. And I think also given the way people consume things online and retain services online and do just about everything online, it's it's so amazing what you can get online. Like, oh, this is a bit of a diversion, but 
It's my husband's birthday next week and our nephew was asking, what does he want for his birthday? And he said, what about an I Survived Lockdown T-shirt? And I said, oh, <laughs> you can find that one. And he showed me this website where you can custom design your own T-shirts and get them printed up within half, you know, within yeah. half a week. Yeah, like, wow. What can you get online? It's just amazing. But, you know, people are used to services that yeah. they can access and understand online and services that we're because of the level of competition, the providers really understand that they have to make it damn good. Mm-hmm. And there isn't enough of that kind of competition among legal services. And I, I think that is beginning to change. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's not as much competition among legal services, but clients aren't just comparing lawyers with lawyers. In fact, they're probably not because the majority would probably not have multiple lawyers, but they're comparing us with other service providers. I mean, to, to kind of expand on your example, I had a doctor's appointment booked that I booked online conveniently because they now offer online booking. So I didn't have to sit on hold and wait. And, you know, are you available at this time and this time? I could just go onto the website and make the booking. And then as it turned out, I didn't even need to show up because my doctor got my results and phoned me. And so he just called me and gave me and it saved me this trip in obviously didn't have to pay. And I was reflecting on that thinking, how would that be handled in the legal profession? You know, how many lawyers offer online bookings? How many would just call the client and save them the trouble of having to come in where they had an update? Or are we still much more traditional than that? Yeah, look, I, I think that is beginning. Now, COVID is, has kind of kicked that off a bit, that people are much more amenable to doing online services. And I was speaking to a lawyer the other day who um, she has a couple of clients that have disabilities that make it very difficult for them to get out and actually see a lawyer face to face. And they love the fact that they can have a Zoom consultation. And I think that there's been a number of firms that have been doing that for a while as well. I think that there's no reason why that isn't just as effective a way of doing things. Like in certain cases, you would want to eyeball the client and actually see them face to face. But I think um, COVID has opened people's eyes to uh, seeing the way that things can be done in a much more streamlined and customer-friendly way. Yeah, I agree with you. And even in our firm, I mean, we're a very forward-thinking firm and we would have offered video conferencing, but it's not something that we had advertised on our website. For example, you couldn't choose that option on our online booking form. The only option was in person, whereas now it's just become a way of life because, Mm. you know, everybody knows how to use Zoom now, so that's a bonus. (laughs) The other thing that's been really interesting about um, COVID is that I think it's helped a lot of lawyers to see that they're a lot more adaptable than they gave themselves credit for. And that they can set up, when they need to set up stuff, they can set up stuff. And if it isn't perfect, they can just tinker with it and make it a bit better. I think that releasing that kind of mindset opens people's eyes to doing things a bit differently in other ways as well, which is a really good thing. That mindset comment is a really good point. And it almost leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which was about barrier to change from your perspective. So I have a list of examples, which I'm going to not share yet. I want to hear what you think, but I'm interested to see if you're, what what you say about any misconceptions that you come across in the profession from lawyers who say, I can't do things differently because of this barrier or this barrier from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, a lot of the regulatory barriers that people think are there are kind of imaginary rather than actual. A great example is really around pricing of legal services. Uh, There's a lot of people that think that you have to record your time and you have to charge by the hourly rate. That's not the case at all. 
that's just kind of the conventional way of doing things. And, yes, there's a lot of parts in the uniform law that talk about billing by the hourly rate, but that's kind of like after the event, clearing up the problems that come from billing by the hourly rate. It's just because that's the conventional way of doing things and the regulations try to fix that up. But within the regulations as they stand, there is a lot of scope for negotiating the price. So you can you can bill by the stage of the work, you can bill by the hourly rates if you want to, you can do an agreed price. There's a lot of different ways that things can be done. But there's this sense in which people mistake the conventional and traditional way of doing things to what's required in the regulation. And, you know, the regulation is actually a lot more flexible than that. We would really take this point of view as well that the main things that we're going to take action against have to involve some element of consumer harm. There has to be some way in which the um, client is being ripped off or somebody's being taken advantage of or they're not being given correct um, information or advice. Those sorts of issues are the sorts of things where we would be concerned and take action. So um, that's really the hallmark of when we're going to take action against a lawyer. But I think there's other things like uh, we've been able to do multidisciplinary practices for years. We've been able to have investment by non-lawyers in law firms. That's, that's perceived as a very big barrier in the United States, yeah. and which is beginning to come down now. But that hasn't been a barrier for us for years. And yet we don't have a particularly innovative culture. So that tells me that there's other stuff underneath it that really is driving the fear of innovation and the lack of innovation in legal services. I don't think it is the regulation. I think there's a couple of places where it could be a lot more principle-based and a lot more open. So, like, there's a a couple of little finickety things around uh, trust accounting that people often find difficult and that could be improved and tightened up. But I think the idea that there are regulatory barriers to innovation is a bit of a myth. In Victoria, at least. Yeah, yeah, I know, because as we were just saying before we hit record, that we have different things going on in different states over here. Um, I want to come back to the price thing, but before I do that, I just want to pick up on you've just mentioned about what's driving the lack of innovation. What do you think it might be? What are the thoughts that you've had around that? You've mentioned trust account. I don't know if you just mean people are fearful of those because of the regulations or if there's more to it than that. Oh, look, that that can sometimes be an issue in the way that money's received for services and things like that. Oh, of course, we can't, yeah. But it's a bit of a side issue. I think the main things, there's a lot of issues around culture and mindset that um, lawyers tend to be, it's the mindset of um, caution and risk aversion that we don't want to do the wrong thing. There's a fear of, you know, if you do something different that the regulator's going to pounce on you, certainly not the case in Victoria, but there's a lack of a feeling of freedom to do something differently and to try to do things better. And I've found it really interesting watching what was going on in the United States with LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer and groups like that and the fact that they just decided that they were going to do it and then when the bar associations came up against them, they just said, get stuffed and um, (laughs) sued them for restraint of trade. I just thought that was... There really isn't enough of a challenge culture in law that I would like to see a few more sort of, I don't want to encourage cowboys, but there's a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset that is a bit lacking in a lot of lawyers. So that's an issue. There's a question of who leads it. So 
I think sometimes people expect the big law firms to lead innovation, but that is just not the way innovation works. It always comes from the maverick outsiders. So if you want to do something differently, I think you've got to be confident, competent, confident, you've got to be smart, you've got to be wise, have a careful look at what you are and aren't permitted to do. And most of all, you have to keep your consumers safe and well-informed and, you know, give them choice, all that sort of thing. But I think, you know, just that a little bit of risk-taking and entrepreneurship would be good. I think that's the mindset thing. But I actually think pricing is really, really a key factor in innovation because if you think you have to do things by the hourly rate, you have no incentive to be faster and more efficient. So if if you can start pricing things by the value that they present to clients or, you know, doing a a fixed fee offering and a great fee offering for a particular commoditised service, it's then that you start to think about, well, how can I make this into a viable business model? So I think there's a whole lot of issues around mindset, business mindset, pricing, you know, the, the economic issues I think are very important. There are issues that we really have to tackle because I think there's a lot of people that are just realising that the existing model that we've got for law firms simply isn't sustainable anymore. So there's a lot of room for automation, commoditisation and just reimagining and repackaging how valuable services can be provided. Yeah, that was really interesting. I've written notes as you've been talking to me and I've I talk, asked Jenny about this, ask her about this, and now there's uh, my mind's like, which way do I go with that? <laughs> which doesn't happen to me often, I must say, so I'm kind of jumping around here. Let's go with the caution and risk aversion comment that you said, you know, people's concern that if I do something that's a little bit differently, the regulator, I'm going to get in trouble. I, I'm very familiar with that, both from our own practice and from other lawyers who I speak to. Um, there is this always this fear of, is this information or advice or what if I don't charge, you know, what if I don't record my time um, and I've charged a fixed price and the client complains and all those kind of doubts. And I think one of the big challenges is the lack of information about how you can do these things properly. What does the regulator expect, for example? And I know it was years ago now, maybe six or seven years ago, we were toying with the idea of an online service for one of our practice areas and we were trying to work out this is this information is this advice where's the line in terms of our liability what are we responsible for and we did hours and hours of research and really struggled to find anything that was really on point that was going to really give us some guidance in terms of what's the limit and what are we allowed to do and the reason why I raise that is because I know that your way of dealing with this is you're basically offering advice you're offering the the regulator's opinion through your innovation inbox yeah that's right tell us how that works I think that's really cool you know it's one of the easiest things that we can do is that basically people can email me there is an offering that we can give if they actually want to get some sort of formal letter of approval from the commissioner that can be provided but mostly people just want to ring me up and kind of chew the fat and think about well What's the best way of doing this? So I've had questions about uh, value pricing in complex litigation, stage litigation. Online information is another thing that comes up fairly frequently or holistic services around issues like um, family law, probate and estate, things like that. So people can email me in. We have a discussion. I'll often pull in people from other parts of the um, organisation to give their perspective, you know, people that have more expertise in 
pricing and costing and all the rest of it. And sometimes also we'll bring in the um, insurer if that's appropriate as well. But just the fact that we're um, open to be called, lawyers just love it and they think it's so helpful. So I find it really interesting because when I first started in regulation, it was in New South Wales in 1994 and I was an ethics advisor so um, lawyers were always ringing up and saying, oh, I've got this ethical dilemma, can you help me and talk me through it? And I, I just see that that's a natural thing for the regulator to do. We need to be helping people to know how to comply. So you don't want to make that a mystery. That needs to be something that's, that's clear and obvious and upfront. And I think that's what you do really well, because it may well be that other boards do this. I mean, I know the Legal Practice Board in WA, particularly the Trust County, that's where I've had most kind of dealing with them. They're very open. Pick up the phone, ask us a question, we'll help you. But they don't have on their website, we have an innovation inbox and we're here ready to talk to you and, you know, we're on your team kind of, it, it's a different kind of approach. And that's not to say that they're not willing to help. It's just that you advertise it in a really upfront way. And I think that is the key differentiator is you're really, really clear. We want to help you work through this. And if the concern or one of the challenges is this caution or this risk aversion, how much more at ease do you think they would feel by just being able to have a conversation with you about this idea and you say, yeah, that sounds great. And all of a sudden that kind of what might be holding them back from doing something a bit differently, they now feel free to just get on with it because they know that it's okay after all. I think that's the, that's the key difference that I often see it like if I have a Zoom conversation or face-to-face with somebody and you can see the relief on their faces when, you know, particularly if I go, oh, that's a great idea and I'm, you know, enthusiastic and encouraging and they just go, oh, the regulator likes what I'm doing. Well, not that I'm personally the regulator, but, you know, just to get that message that we're open to people doing things differently. And I think we're also very clear about the the criteria that need to be followed in terms of oh, I'm going to I'll need to tell you a little bit more about the consumer principles later on because this is a piece of work we're doing at the moment that I'm very excited about. But, you know, things like access, information, choice, safety, all of those kinds of criteria that you apply to a normal consumer product are the sorts of things that you need to be thinking about with legal services as well. And I think if you've got to do things differently, you need to judge it by those kinds of criteria to make sure that the information that you're giving is is accurate, to make sure that you're giving a clear understanding of what the person's actually buying when they have a look at your service or what what, what's happening when they look at your service. So um, say, for example, you mentioned the, the dilemma, the very common dilemma about information versus advice. I mean, I have a I have a particular take on that, but I think as long as you're very clear on what you're actually providing to the person and they, they understand that that's the basis on which they're retaining your services and you have the cautions there, that's, that's their choice as a consumer that they can use it in that way. So would you like me to go off on a diversion on what I think of information versus advice at this stage? Or we just I would love that. That's one of the most common. Pricing is the first. I'm, I mentioned I had a list, right, but I wanted to hear from you. The common things that come up for me with the lawyers I speak to is first the pricing, you know, do I have to record my time? And we've, we've spoken about that. And the other is information and advice. And I guess the third one, which might tie into that a bit, is do I have to put everything in writing and give them a letter of advice every time I, I utter a word or does it need to make its way into a letter? But let's talk about the information and advice because it's so interesting. Love to hear what you think. 
I've really gained a lot from some uh, very interesting conversations with uh, Adrian Cartland of Alira fame, the law firm without lawyers. But we started talking about this a while ago and he starts from the with information you've got you've got things like the Fitzroy Legal Service Handbook online or you know the, the sorts of things where you've got templates you've got legal information that anybody can access so that's the print version the analog version of information and then as you get into the things that you can do with technology you can make that more and more sophisticated and more and more precise So another example is one of the large law firms in Melbourne designed a very good tool that was helped to help people to work out whether they needed to make an application to the Foreign Investment Review Board. And the way they did it was that they deconstructed the piece of legislation into a series of decision trees. So basically, you went through this questionnaire that followed this decision tree and you ended up with something that told you exactly whether you needed to apply or not and or, you know, if it was a bit of a borderline kind of issue, then that was the point at which you got in touch with the lawyer. But the thing is, you've got a very detailed decision tree that then gives you something that looks like advice. It isn't advice because it hasn't been tailored personally for you, but it follows through to the logical point. And I think also um, to take artificial intelligence, if you've got machine learning that looks at a problem through learning from a large data set, what it can tell you is that people who are in your situations and, you know, they'll they'll kind of figure out what that situation is through a series of questions, people who are in your situation are generally going to do this. So that might not necessarily work for you and, and, you know, you need to take into account you should probably get some legal advice on top if you don't feel comfortable with that. But it's not actually advice because basically all it's, it's it's saying to you this is what people in your situation generally do. So I feel like information or advice is actually the wrong question. You really need to, again, go back to the consumer principles issues of is it going to be safe advice or safe guidance for people who are going to follow that path? What are the things that they need to take into account before they take those steps? And should they get additional advice on top of that? Because I view advice as being person to person, so expert individual looking at a person, assessing them in terms of their um, their fact situation, their risk appetite, their financial resources, and it is very personalised, that advice is always personalised, this is what I would do in your situation. Whereas the technologically enabled one is really more, this is what other people do, and you can choose to do that or not as you see fit. One of the concerns I hear with those examples of the decision trees and, the, you know, that are made up, expanded into an online form when someone can tick through on a website and kind of come to an opinion or should I make this application or whatever it may be. One of the concerns I hear is what if they answer wrong or they don't provide all the information or there's some out of the box circumstance that is relevant to their scenario that they don't mention on this form and so they then rely on this information that they get and it's wrong because it's not tailored to them. Considering what you've just said, I would say that it's not advice, it's not personalised, it's not tailored. We can't help if they put the wrong answer the wrong question on the form. Would that be what your view would be? Um, it probably depends, it's too general. It, look, it, it is a bit of a question and I, and I still feel like with that kind of example, what you'd be looking at there is really the safety issue, whether the person's been given the right cautions about following that 
that route before getting to it. But again, information versus advice and whether that's engaging in unqualified practice or whatever the issue might be is kind of the wrong question. I think the real Mm -hmm. question needs to be, is it safe? Is it accurate? And have you warned people about the risks of what they're doing? So because I think that's the thing that you can't expect the same level of service as you would get with a one-to-one advice with a true expert in the area, but you can get sort of 80% of the way. And I think if there's, particularly if there's an opportunity for somebody to kind of triage the kind of problem that they've got and then speak to a lawyer at the end of the process, that makes a lot more sense and that would be a much safer way of handling it. So if you had that combination of the decision tree, the chatbot, the machine-learned product or, or all the rest of it, and then you get an opportunity to speak to a lawyer at the end or the, the, the lawyer's services is thrown in for a flat fee as well, then that would be a much safer offering. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to bring you back to before we wrap up the interview is commoditized service. That's one of the things that you mentioned just before. How have you seen commoditised services used in the legal profession and what's your view on those? Look, I've seen them used in various ways. So there's a couple of offerings that I think are really, really interesting that I've seen. So uh, Resolution 123, Carly Stebbing's platform, I think is really, really interesting because she offers the free service in particular areas, the flat fee service for other areas that gives you a package of stuff and guidance to get through it, and then the hours appointment with a lawyer. And then if that's not appropriate, there's an option to actually enter into a full retainer if you've got more complexities there. So I think that that's a good model, so offering things at different kinds of levels. I also like the way Clarissa Raywood structures her services in terms of doing a lot of information videos and a lot Mm. of the product that she's got, the Splitsville course that helps people to actually negotiate all the issues in the divorce, not just the legal issues, I think is incredibly helpful. So that kind of sense of designing something which actually helps the family law client, not just with their family law problem, but with their life problem that has some (laughs) legal issues. To reimagine it from the client's perspective is really important. Um, Another one that I think is really, really promising is the model that was developed in Claimify, that service that Shine Lawyers designed, which was for a partially automated platform to help make a particular type of personal injury claim, the way they sort of split out the process to figure out where the lawyer's services were most important and needed and where the client could self-service along the way, I think that has a lot of potential as well. So there's a fair bit of interesting stuff going on out there. It's, it's still at very early stages, but I think it is so interesting just seeing everybody actually having a close look at the market and having a close look at who's not buying and who could be buying and who could be helped and and thinking about how to design things that are actually going to work for them. And also thinking about how to leverage your experience to figure out how do you standardise a lot of stuff? I think we're, we're kind of, as lawyers, we're more interested in thinking how is this case unique and we should be thinking a bit more about how is this case the same? The same, yes. Yeah, how, does it, yes. <laughs> how, how does it fit into the common patterns that you see all the time? It's like, you know, I read fourteen or 15,000 complaints and I got to the point where I could just go, you know, I could just skim through it. Oh, it's one of these. This person can handle that. Oh, it's one of those. Oh, you know, the familiarisation 
motivation that you get through doing things over and over and over again, those heuristics, you can really leverage those into thinking about how to do your legal services in a much more standardised way and figuring out where do you need to pay the individual attention. And I think it's often on the very touchy-feely kind of things, the actual conversation with the client to make sure they understand exactly what they're getting and to help guide them through the process and support them through the process and to figure out what can they live with in a couple of years' time, what will get them through this and um, land them at the place where they need to be. And that earlier comment about how are these the same is really one of the things that's at the core of the work I do and my approach to legal services, and I speak about it a lot in my new book, because we like I can't to think wait that, to read your that, book. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's cool. It's cool. I've, I've got one here in front of me. They've just been delivered, and it's exciting. But that's one of the things I talk about in terms of. I mean, you call it commoditizing services. I talk about productizing, which is similar but you know slightly different. I'm interested in having a really streamlined system for delivery, so we can eliminate some of the manual kind of grunt work. But it's about recognizing that there is a lot of what we do is the same. The difference might be the client or the kind of the personal aspects like you say Um, but the process and the routine is often very very similar and so when I'm looking at designing services in much like the approach that Clarissa has taken and that Carly has taken and both of those have been guests on the podcast so I'll link their episodes in your show notes for people who are interested but I look at three tiers I look at what would this service look like if it was a DIY service what would it look like if it was done with you so we were basically guiding you And what would it look like if it was done for you? So we take everything off your hands and we are in the driver's seat effectively. And those three different tiers offer really different ways of providing the service. You would have a completely different scope and pricing structure. um, And it really changes the way you look at a client's problem because it offers you all of a sudden, there are lots of different ways we could deal with this, not just, I will be your lawyer and I will do everything for you, like you mentioned to start with. So yeah, I was interested to hear your thoughts on commoditized services. I like the uh, description productized services. I think that's kind of a bit of a less threatening term. It makes it sound a little little more sort of personal and, uh, you know, yeah, I think commoditized makes it sound like it's just set and forget, whereas productized is really about how do you discipline what you've got in your brain into something that is really valuable and can be used again and again. Exactly, and, yeah. Yeah, it's leveraging yeah. your expertise. That's it. So for me, a productized service has got a fixed scope or predetermined scope, a fixed price and a system for delivery. And those are the three things. And the system is really, I guess, the key for me of what makes it into a product because you could do a custom scope and price for any service but in order for you to leverage it and use it time and time again you need to have that system behind it and so that's what my book's well partly what my book is all about and that's the reason why I like productized services or one of the reasons is because I think that they really tie together a lot of the ideas that people have about legal innovation. And you you touched on this before when you said people talk about pricing, but it's not just pricing, it's what are you delivering and what's the scope and what's the expectation that the client has. And I like productized services because they're a way of tying all those things together. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right. So the question I like to finish on with all of my guests is what advice would you give to someone who wants to do law differently? Um, Look, I think the main thing is to, to start with exploring what consumers want and need. To not forget that what we can provide as lawyers is really valuable for people. It helps them to get through a really terrible time in their lives or a difficulty or it helps them to set up for success if they're starting a new 
new business and God knows that a lot of new businesses and a lot of innovation as we recover from the economic hit that COVID has imposed on us. But there's a lot of ways in which we can really help people and it would be such a shame to not make the most of that. And so I'm thinking we need to think about what do our, what do consumers and potential consumers of legal services need in what kind of situations what's your expertise that you can um, you can leverage to really make that um, better for them and you know how can you provide a service that is easily accessed um, gives clear information gives people lots of choices and basically empowers them to do what they need to do to either solve a problem that they're currently experiencing or to to set up for success in the future. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably my my main advice. Yeah, that's excellent. And maybe maybe also call the regulator and ask them your question. Can we add that? How should people get in touch with you? What is the best way if they do want to take advantage of your very kind offer to um, give some advice about the ideas that they might have for their business? What's the best way to get in touch with you if you're in Victoria, obviously? Okay, so it's it's innovation at lsbc.vic.gov.au. I wouldn't describe it as advice per se. It's really more um, guidance and, you know, road testing the ideas. So um, if people come to us with an idea and we can see some of the pitfalls in it, we'll talk through those with them and talk through the areas where they would need to make sure that the, you know, the areas that they really need to concentrate on to make sure that it doesn't fall foul of any compliance issues. So it, it's really about um, assessing the model rather than, you know, there's, there's certainly no, no sort of licence that you've got to be complaint-free if you yeah. follow this and if you've contacted us. But it's really just about giving assurance and giving information about how the, how the regulation would impact on what people are hoping to do. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much, Jenny. I've loved talking to you today. Thank you, Lucy. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to Doing Law Differently. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love you to leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find out about the show and I love hearing what you think. Otherwise, if you're not on Apple Podcasts, send me a message and let me know. You can find all the past episodes at doinglawdifferently.com.au.